Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McCloss Helms, a fashion culture historian. My guest this week is author, journalist, activist, and founding editor of Ms. Magazine, Letty Cotton Pogrebin. As you'll hear me explain in the interview, I first came across Letty's name while reading biographies of Helen Gurley Brown and Jacqueline Suzanne. From 1960 to 1970, Letty was director of publicity and later vice president of the publishing company Bernard Geis Associates. She rose to publicity director at just 20 years old, her smart and innovative ways of marketing books sending shockwaves through the industry and helping to make giant bestsellers, including Helen Burgerly Brown's Sex and the Single Girl and Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. All the while that she was succeeding in publishing, Letty was married and raising kids, truly seeming to have it all. While working there, she wrote her first book, How to Make It in a Man's World, that laid out how to survive and excel in business as a young working woman. A decade ago, I tracked down a copy and then spent years trying to set up an interview with her, so this was a really exciting one for me. Letty grew up in Queens in a conservative Jewish family. Her mother died when she was 15, not long before Letty started studying at Brandeis. After the success of How to Make It in a Man's World, Letty began writing a column for Ladies Home Journal called The Working Woman, which continued for 10 years. As you'll hear her explain, she got involved with the women's movement and became a founding editor of Ms. Magazine in 1972. Letty was an editorial consultant for the 1972 TV special Free to Be You and Me, for which she earned an Emmy. Throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and up until today, she's continued writing books, centering on subjects around the family, raising children, friendship, being a working woman, aging, and Judaism. Her latest book, Shonda, A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy, was released last year. In it, she unfurls generations of secrets in her family and discusses how the Jewish teaching of Shonda, or shame, perpetuated constant paranoia and secrecy. A chance discovery of a bag of old letters and documents stuffed in a cupboard sent Letty on a journey of discovery into her family's secrets, leading her to become open about the things she had chosen to hide, from multiple abortions to illness. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy. A leader in many social justice causes, Letty served two terms as the president of the Authors Guild, a national organization dedicated to the protection of writers' copyright and contract rights, and two terms as chair of the board of Americans for Peace Now, an advocacy organization working to promote a negotiated solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. She was also a co-founder of the National Women's Political Caucus, the Ms. Foundation for Women, the UJA Federation Task Force on Women, and the International Center for Peace in the Middle East. We finally spoke this January. Our original Zoom was canceled last minute, so we chatted on the phone, which explains the sort of staticky audio. Letty and I chatted about everything, her childhood, the abortions she had as a teen in college in the 1950s, how she got her start in publishing, her long marriage to labor lawyer Bert Pogrebin, what Mad Men got right about the 60s, discovering feminism, Ms. Magazine, balancing career and family life, being a working writer, rediscovering Judaism, and much more. She turned 84 on June 9th and continues to write from the Upper West Side apartment that she and Bert have shared since 1970. Their 60th wedding anniversary will be this December. She was a total delight to talk to, so I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to this podcast. Enjoy. Thank you for making this time for me with your busy schedule. I'm a historian, and my training is in fashion history, but I do sort of cultural history. My area of interest or my era of interest is mostly the 60s and 70s. So you are one of those people who, for a long time in my reading, just kept coming up in different places, well over a decade ago. And then I finally was like, okay, I need to look up who this person is and, you know, read more about you and your long and very interesting career. 
you know, I would pick up a book about Helen Gurley Brown, and then I'd pick up an old issue of Ladies Home Journal. And, you know, it was one of those things where I sort of started pulling together all of the parts of your career sort of separately and <laughs> just thought it was fascinating and, was, you know, have wanted to talk to you for a while about everything. And then I, I just finished Shanda, so all of it. I want to talk about all of it. I'm very flattered. Thank you. Can you tell me a bit, a bit about your childhood and your upbringing and heritage? Yes. Uh, I was born in New York City. And uh, my parents moved from the Bronx to Queens when I was one year one year old, and we lived next door to my mother's sister. So it was very much like a family collective because it was a semi-attached house. We weren't wealthy, but my father was a lawyer, not like a lawyer in a big law firm, but a single practitioner. My mother was a volunteer in many organizations. I was raised Jewish. I, I was observant not Orthodox, but observant. And Jewish life in this community sort of marked my childhood in many ways. We belonged to a big synagogue that had a Hebrew school and a youth program and a bowling alley inside of the building and a swimming pool. It was really quite an institution. I hung out there a lot and I had a lot of friends. I went to a regular public school. My mother died when I was 15, which was the sort of shock of my life. You don't expect that to happen. My mother died of cancer. If you've read Shonda, you know that story and I think I was pretty scarred by that experience and it defined why eventually I became a feminist and why eventually I became a writer. became a feminist I think because I saw my mother's life and it was not rewarding and she was not able to pursue her own dreams. She was locked into a feminine role and uh, I became a writer because I discovered a lot of secrets in my family and when they were revealed to me I realized that uh, my parents were in many ways living a lie and that can definitely shape you. you you feel betrayed you feel you've been lied to you've been deceived and you you can't trust any surfaces anymore and you have to keep peeling the onion kind of back so that's a very broad brush summary Did you have any interest in being a writer when you were growing up? Yes, I did. When I was nine years old, I started, quote, publishing a little magazine. I was born in 1939, so I was nine in 1948. I I, I become uh, the next age in June, so half of the year I'm the same number that the year year is. In 48, I was eight until June, and then I was nine. Well, sometimes... After my birthday, I decided that I wanted to be a writer. When I I was given a funny little toy called the hectograph, and this toy was the making of me. It's called a hectograph, and it was kind of a flat box filled with gelatin, and you you would write with special ink on a piece of paper, press the paper against this very firm gelatin, and the image would transfer. And then you could print five copies from that gelatin. Um, And that's how I published. And then you would, you you would sort of change, you know, melt your gelatin and then it would harden again and you could do the whole thing all over again. And that's what made me both a writer and a publisher. And what I did was I mimicked the magazines that I saw my mother reading around the house. My mother was an immigrant from Hungary and very eager to become a real American, and so she was always reading women's magazines to figure, American women's magazines to figure out how she should dress, what she should cook, you know, because she wanted to cook like an American, how she should behave like a wife, 
how she should decorate her house. So I had all those little departments. I called my magazine the Zip Magazine. <laughs> God knows why. And I would have a section for letters to the editor, and I would have a section for editorials, and I would have a section for, you know, recipe of the week or whatever it was. It's ironic because I ended up spending 18 years at a magazine, and I, I became one of the co-founders of Ms. Magazine, as you know. And I wrote the magazine. I never did write a novel when I was a child, but I wrote many short stories and poems, and I published my little magazine for a few years, which was subscribed to by neighbors and members of our extended family. I didn't make a profit because I used to charge three cents per copy, and then I would mail it out with a three-cent stamp. But I wasn't in it for the money. That's wonderful. Oh, that was such a full circle sort of moment, you know, with later in your No, you're right. My children became, my, my daughters became writers. And I could see that early in their lives. But, but my, my daughters wrote much more ambitiously. I would buy them, you know, empty bound books, which you could get in a stationery store, and, and they would fill it with a novel. <laughs> so they were much more ambitious. You probably know that my daughters did become writers. My, my daughter, Robin, is a longtime journalist at the New York Times, and my daughter, Abigail, has, has published four or five books. I went to Jamaica High School. I graduated at, well, I graduated, I became 16 in, in June and I went to college in September. So I was the youngest person at Brandeis University. I was 16 and I graduated just before my, you know, I was still 19 when I graduated. I graduated in early June and then I turned 20 on June 9th. What was it like going to college so young? The hard part for me about going to college at all was that I was the only person without a mother that I knew. And that really was, a, I felt sort of stigmatized. I felt people pitied me. I didn't have any trouble with the, with the academics or the social life, quite honestly. I had friends and I had boyfriends. But I was very aware that people don't like to get near death. You know, to be, they think it's contagious. And the idea of a 16-year-old without a mother was really weird in those days. So... Uh, I sort of had to keep my emotions to myself because I was very much in mourning, oh, and that was that. the hard part. Yeah, I can imagine that would be very hard. What was your experience of being a teenager in the 50s like? Well, before my mother died, I think I was precocious, but I was still a, a good girl. When my mother died, I think I kind of rebelled a little. I just went against the grain. I became sexually active, which was a shanda, which was a real scandal for a girl, especially a Jewish girl, at least in the Jewish community. You know, it was simply unacceptable for women that girls have sex before marriage. It's still the case in many cultures, but mine was an immigrant family and everybody was trying to be on their best behavior so they would be accepted in the new world here. And if it had been known that I was... Uh, acting out, as they said, I would have ruined my family. I would have ruined my own reputation. Uh, I, and I would have cast a shadow over the whole Jewish people because we're such a minority that the behavior of one of us reflects on the other, whether it's getting a Nobel Prize and making us look good or being a Harvey Weinstein and making us look bad. Mm-hmm. We take responsibility for each other in that way. And I think that's true of several minority groups in this country, they still feel that way. 
they worry when somebody from their ethnic group is in the headlines in a negative way that it reflects on all of them because people do tend to generalize unfairly and stereotype very quickly. So that still is a syndrome. Yeah, I mean, in your new book, Shonda, you speak about, well, you reveal that you had like two abortions. Right, right. College. Yeah. How did, so that was in my, in my senior year. And as I said in the book, I had written about the first abortion in the New York Times in 1990-something, 95 or 6 or something, because I wanted very much to expose the horrors of illegal abortion. Because at that point, you know, Roe v. Wade was, I think, you know, a little over 20 years old. And um, I just wanted young people to know what it was like when they didn't have this right. So it was important to me to expose myself to whatever opprobrium there was, whatever condemnation there was out there, in order to tell the truth. It's part of my thing. You have to tell the truth about your life. And what I couldn't do, as I explained in in Shonda, is I couldn't admit that I was stupid enough to get pregnant the second time. That was work because I was raised to believe, you know, you don't have to have power. You don't have to be beautiful. You have to be smart. That will, that's how Jews have survived through the millennia, no matter who hated us, no matter how we were mistreated. If we were smart, we had a chance at survival. And getting pregnant twice in my last semester of college was not smart. And that's the part I couldn't, I couldn't go public with. So that gives you an idea of why so many of the secrets in Shonda are Jewish-related for me, because I was raised to be so conscious of being a credit to my people. You know, we all had to be. What is your ethnic background, Laura? Wasp. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have to worry about that, you know. It's like white yeah. people don't have to wake up in the morning and worry about, are their kids going to go to school and come home alive? But yeah. We don't have that thought. Um, everybody with a black skin puts their child on a school bus with a lot of fear. What's going to happen to him or her today? And for, you know, ethnic minorities, we have to think about all that. And and white Anglo-Saxon Protestants didn't. Mm-hmm. That sort of uh, is a, it, it in a nutshell. You have to have a double consciousness. When you revealed the first abortion or the, you know, recently the second one, did you get any condemnation? Did you get the condemnation that you sort of expected? No, not at all, which is what what convinces me that the more you tell the truth, the more you touch the lives of people who to whom something like this has happened or they've been through it. It may not be two abortions, it may, two, it may be two, two mistakes, two shoplifting, two, two something that you're ashamed of. And the first, you should have learned your lesson, and then you did it again, whatever it is. And I think we hide that because we hate to see ourselves as people who could make a mistake twice. So that I think my telling that, you didn't have to have had two abortions. You had to have had an experience of making a mistake twice. And who hasn't? You know, who hasn't said, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. I was, why didn't I learn my lesson? How can it be I'm going through this again? You know, oh, shit, basically, is how we all react to ourselves when we do that. And here I was admitting it, and it made it 
human, made it human and made a human connection. So I have not received any condemnation. But then again, it's it's 2000 something, you know, I, I, it was published six months ago. So six months ago, we we're living in a world that has heard so much worse, <laughs> lived through so much worse and accepted so much more. So I, I did not get any criticism, any shock, any, how dare you? Why did you? How awful? No. So much has changed, but then also, you know, we've, at least legally, gone backwards, you know, in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. While you were in college, you were also working every summer, and you, you know, reading your stories about your your college summer experiences working, you seem to have had a lot of, like, chutzpah to go after real jobs. Where do you think you got that from? I didn't have a choice, Laura, really. I mean, when my father, since he read the book, you know, my father told me I'm paying for room, board, and tuition, and the rest you're on your own. Well, I don't have to tell you, there's a lot of the rest, you know, Mm -hmm. and most kids uh, at that time were given spending money, you know, so they could go to the movies, so they could buy a new pair of socks, so they could have an ice cream cone. And my father gave me nothing. It all went right into the bursar's office at college. You know, it was tuition, women board, period. So I had no choice. I had to. So I tutored uh, athletes in biology and English. And I took a, you know, part-time hourly rate job in the publicity department of the alumni office, I think it was, or college publicity department. And I worked for the Hillel rabbi on campus who, as I said in the book, subsequently became a close friend. He and his wife are very dear friends. And um, I don't think it took chutzpah. It took, you know, necessity is the mother of adaptation. I adapt. I adapted to my circumstances. And then when I got out of school, I had to support myself. I mean, I had a lawyer father who I thought was comfortable, later discovered was struggling himself to keep a face of you know, keep keep up a an image of being much more successful than he was. I had no idea until much later that my father was struggling because he always had a nice car. He always dressed well. He he always was the one who picked up the check when they went out together with another couple. But then I discovered this bag of letters, which I write about, letters from 80-something years ago, in which my father is clearly penny-pinching every single day, penny pinching, so that he could keep up this fake facade. So I think my father was telling me he was doing me a favor by making me be independent at 16 when he really could not afford any more money than he was giving to the school Mm -hmm. just to support my actual academic career. And when I graduated, I had to support myself. I got an apartment in the village. The the thing that's interesting about the 50s, it's totally different now. There were no internships. There was no such thing as a summer job. So I had to lie and say that I had quit school. I told the employment agency where I went, I said I had to quit school to help, you know, support my family. And because they would all say, why why, why aren't you going back to school? And I I lied because otherwise there was no summer internship or, or Trial, you know, we'll, we'll let you try out here, and then when you get out of school, we'll hire you. That stuff happens all the time. Now, never did. It was, it was unheard of. 
And once I was a successful working in the summertime for Simon & Schuster Book Publishers, then I admitted it. And I asked if I could come back the following summer, and they said yes. Because they realized I had taken the place of the secretaries who went on vacation. They actually needed a summer replacement. So, um, you know, when this secretary went on vacation for three weeks, I took her place. The next secretary in the next department, I took her place. And that's the way from the beginning of June until the third week in September, I worked for Simon & Schuster after my freshman, sophomore, and junior years. And then I had a, a... went out and took a different job at a different uh, publishing house just to experience something new. But that's how I entered publishing. And you became a, a director at Bernard Geis by, what, 21? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was director of four departments, publicity, promotion, advertising, and subsidiary rights. And that happened because I had been hired as an assistant to the director, and then she got a very big job offer at Harcourt Brace. She left, and my boss had had only a few weeks' experience looking at my work, but he said, I'm going to give you a, a chance at this. You've, you've been a quick study. You learned a lot in a short time. You've watched your superior do it, and we were pleased with how she did it, and we're pleased with how you're doing it, and so we're giving you a chance. And I stayed there for 10 years, and I had a fantastic – that was – from the from November 1960 until April 1970, I was at Bernard's Associates. I had a blast because in 1960 it was you know it was almost the 60s. The 60s really didn't start until about 1966, in terms of our sort of socio symbolic notion of what the 60s were. The 60s were pretty much like the 50s for the first few years, but. I was able to do a lot of razzle-dazzle book promotion stuff because this was a young, brash publishing publishing house. And my authors were all famous for something else. They weren't famous literary people. They were famous people who were writing books. And when that phenomenon first broke onto the American publishing scene, these books were called non-books. <laughs> they were called non-book books because they were by non-writers. Jacqueline Suzanne was a non-writer. She had been a model, and she was like in cafe society. She wrote Valley of the Dolls, which was a mega bestseller. And, uh, you know, I thought up all kinds of jazzy publicity schemes. Uh, You know, I sent out press releases with fake pills attached because it was about pill addiction. It was kind of like the, the, uh, the rock stars who have groupies, and they all got stoned all the time. Well, this presaged that, that that kind of behavior was Broadway-based behavior instead of rock star-based behavior, wild drug-addled behavior. And that's what the book was about. And so I, I had the idea of just catching people's attention by I attached pills to a prescription pad with the press release. And the you know, everything's very staid and very gentlemanly in the publishing world when I was in it in the beginning. And here was somebody sending out a prescription pad with a few, a few pills attached that it made news. And I did all of those quirky kinds of things just to create buzz for my, my author's books. And that's why you may have encountered me in stories about Bernie Geist associates. If you were, you know, if you were Googling me, really going deep into it, you would see a story in Newsweek, a story in the Times, the New York Post that mentions me because you wouldn't normally mention 
the director of publicity. You would mention the author and you would mention the publisher. But I had done so many of these fun campaigns that I started to be noticed. And eventually I was asked to write a book of my own about my experiences as the publicist and an executive in charge of four departments at a publishing company. And that became my first book, How to Make It in the Man's World. And I reported my experiences with, you know, I had King Hussein of Jordan. I had President, uh, former President Harry Truman. I had Art Linkletter, who was like, uh, he was a, a, a on-camera television star who had a talk show and also wrote books called Kids Say the Darndest Things. He was a big, big celebrity. He was my author. Groucho Marx, Harpo Marx, the brilliant comic geniuses of Hollywood who, who did, I guess, a dozen hilarious movies. They were my, my authors. I had a lot of fun, and I had a very glamorous life, so my book was fun to read, and, and I got a very good review in the New York Times to the point where I was starting to keep writing assignments, and that's when I quit my job and became a full-time writer. Wow, I didn't think I could ever summarize 10 years so fast. (laughs) But there there it is. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I came across several articles talking about your long blonde hair and how you looked like you just came off of a motorcycle. Right. I I did. I had had a motor scooter. (laughs) I had a Lambretta. I had a Lambretta. You know, and I, I guess I looked like one of those ingenues in Italian movies who scoot around on a motor scooter. I don't know. I'm 83 now. I can hardly recognize my my former self, but I know I had a great time in the 60s. <laughs> I had a I had a motor scooter. I had a dog. I at one point had a rabbit that a boyfriend gave me, and another point I had a duck <laughs> that I kept in my tub. Wow. So if, did you ever see Breakfast at Tiffany's? Yeah. With Audrey Hepburn? Yeah, that immediately popped yeah. into my head when you said that. That's that was my life. I, I had a very a very you know single girl in New York sort of fizzy life, and I loved every bit of it. Even a- after I got married, I I continued on my job. When I had my kids, I had twins. I got married in sixty. I got the job as director in November nineteen sixty. I got married in December sixty three. I had my twins in May 65. And I quit because that's what you did. And then I came back because I didn't really feel there was enough to do at home. <laughs> I don't know how I felt that way with twin babies. But I did. <laughs> I have a lot of energy. And I would be sitting around watching them nap. And I said, what am I doing here? You know, this is crazy. I was cleaning the house three times. I was spending forever making dinner. And then you know, I didn't have enough to do. I didn't have enough that interested me. So I called Bernie Geis and I said, I'd like to come back. He said, he said I knew you would. I didn't hire anybody else. <laughs> so I left in May, in May, and I came back to him in September of 65. And I stayed there another another five years. And then my book was published in April of 1970. How to Make It in a Man's World, and it got this great review, and I was able to, I got so many assignments to do different articles and speeches and stuff that I knew I could make a living, you know, doing just writing, and I I could be home with my kids and also write. 
and that's what I did the rest of the time till they all left for their own lives. Yeah, I've read um, How to Make It in the Man's World, and, you know, it's great. It's that it, you know, for me, it's very helpful. It feels like, you know, it gives a real good understanding of what it was like, you know, to work in a yeah. company as a woman at the time. Right, right. If that's your, your special historical area, you know, I'm your girl. Yeah, because Mad Men, when Mad Men came out, uh, you know, the TV series, mm-hmm. a woman, I think her name was Penelope Green. You could Google her. She had the idea of sitting down with me in front of the TV set and watching it with me so I could comment on how true this was, how familiar that was, you know, how that was an exaggeration or that wasn't even as bad as it really was, you know. And there's a piece in the Times you could probably find that has me commenting to her through listening to one or two of those watching together. We watched together. Because, you know, there there were scenes in Mad Men where I recognized the furniture. (laughs) Because my office, the director's office, after she left to go to Harcourt, I moved into her office. It was a humongous office. It had a TV. It had a long desk. I mean... I could lie down on that desk and there was room for for another person. And I had four windows in my office and a rug, you know, the whole work. And then I had a secretary outside and I had a little door that went to my assistant's office. It was like I died and went to heaven. And when I was watching Mad Men, I saw my clock, my, 19, my 1960s clock. I saw, I saw the, uh, the, the fabric design of one of my upholstered chairs so whoever did the you know the scenic verisimilitude on Mad Men they really knew what they were doing or else they got it right straight out of the storage place that got all my furniture from the 60s so that was you know if you read that then you really do know but that's a life of a very privileged quote girl and they called us girls right through right through the whole decade we were girls even if you were an executive, you, you know, you were, you were an executive, you were a top girl, <laughs> a top girl. But if you read that book, that was the few, the few women who, who broke through that little glass ceiling at that level. We didn't become the top, top girls, but the ones who became executives, that was our life. Exactly what I wrote about. Uh, the publishing world had a few of us and you know, we we knew each other. We knew we all knew each other because there were so few of us. You know, maybe there was a dozen of us in the entire publishing industry. What was it like transitioning from working as an executive to being a journalist and writer? It was its own joy, and still is. You, what you get is complete independence and self sufficiency. So. You know, I, if I didn't feel good, I, I didn't have to worry about calling in sick. I just stayed in my bed or played with the kids on the floor. If I didn't meet a, a deadline, it was I who paid for it. I, I didn't have to worry that, that the publisher was going to pay for it or the author was going to pay for anything that I did wrong. It was my own, I was in my own constellation. You know, I was my own constellation. So I was responsible for myself, but also my my work benefited me, whereas my work in 10 years of publishing built the the reputations of my authors, which was as it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. And now I was writing 
you know, my own thoughts and feelings and passions. And once I got involved with Ms., which was only one year later after I left Guys, I had this excellent review in the Times by John Leonard, who was the head book reviewer at the time. And he he gave me such a good review that Betty Friedan got called and asked me to go with her down to Washington to the founding conference of the National Women's Political Caucus, which is where I met Gloria Steinem, which is how I got involved in Ms. And at the same time, a woman named Lenore Hershey, who was an editor at the Ladies' Home Journal. You mentioned the Ladies' Home Journal, Laura. My mother was reading the Ladies' Home Journal like, like it was the Bible, and then suddenly I get a phone call from the editor after this book was published, How to Make It in a Man's World, and she's asking me if I'll do a column, the first column for expressly for working women in any women's mass magazine. So I had the working woman column for 10 years, and I was at Ms. For, from 1971 until 1989. I had the working woman column from 1970, 1980, and then I had the Ms. career from 71 to 89 through a whole lot of different permutations. But I loved everything I was doing. And then I was writing books at the same time and raising three children and having a very nice marriage. It was a very totally rewarding period of my life. I'm extremely fortunate in having been able to do what I love and and to be in the women's movement and to feel that there was a, a place in which I could also struggle against the status quo, which I always was doing anyway, and struggle against the constraints on the, quote, feminine role and, and struggle politically, you know, for more humane legislation and to support litigation and to support activist events and groups and so on. The only sad part of my story is backlash that that has forced us to have to regroup and do a lot of the same battles all over again. Was your first interaction with the women's movement when you went with Betty to the National Women's Political Caucus? Well, to the founding of it? Yes. She's the one who brought me into the women's movement because the book that I produced was not a feminist book. The book was a kind of, you know, here's this bunch of anecdotes for a quote, career girl from a career, career girl in the 1960s. It didn't draw conclusions about systemic sexism, patriarchy, any of the things we now understand go on that keep women down. I, I was oblivious. Why? Because I was the chosen one, right? Because my boss says, well, I'm going to give you a chance. And why did he do that? Because what I was doing worked. And did it help women other than myself? No. You know, it was just a single story of one woman. And the movement was about all women. When I went down to Washington, ostensibly to be her, what she called, be my writer. To be her writer, I mean, I would write up the day's events, and then she would weave it into a speech. You know, she was going to do the plenary speech. And so I covered whatever I could cover. I went to workshops. I went to the to the main sessions, the plenary sessions. I took notes on all the speakers. And at the end of the day, I really <laughs> I became a feminist just from listening. I had not been exposed to any of this, and I was pretty oblivious to the fact that the, there was such a thing as women's, women's lib. You know, these were presented in the media as a, a little bit uh, 
crazy ladies, a little bit dykey, a little bit man-hating, a little bit family, anti-family, a little bit hairy legs, a little bit, you know, no makeup, no bras, all those caricatures that I, I had absorbed probably through osmosis in the media that I never focused in because, you know, I had this job and I had these fun campaigns and I wasn't suffering and I wasn't poor and I wasn't being discriminated against. I was kind of in a little bubble. But when I went into this conference and heard everything, I mean, we heard reports from women on welfare and women in prison and women on campus who were, you know, weren't getting tenure. And it was a brand new world to me. And then abuse and inequities in divorce and rape. I, I just practically was dizzy with it. And it was an epiphany for me. It was a wake-up call. So just what happened on the Saturday night after we had had a Friday session and an all-day Saturday session, and Betty sends me into one of those side workshop rooms and, you know, conference hotels that are covered in green felt tablecloths, you know, people go in there to do their separate agenda items. Uh, it was an empty room. She said, go in there, she said, and, and write it all up. So I had all my notes and I took a fresh legal pad and I was going to go write up the proceedings so she would be able to make her speech from it. And sitting in there was Gloria Steinem. She and I worked together because Gloria said, I said, oh, I'm so sorry to disturb you. And she said, no, no, come in. And I said, I, I, Betty Fredan sent me in here to write up my notes and on the day's sessions. And Gloria said, oh, that's what I'm doing. Why don't we work on them together? Which is quintessential Gloria. I mean, she's a person who wants always to share credit. She never wants to be the only one. Like a lot of people want to be the only one, the big shot, so, you know, the top, top gun. Gloria said, let's together. We stayed up till three in the morning. It was so overly air conditioned. We wrapped ourselves in the green, the green felt tablecloths in that workshop room. By the end of that night, you know, wee hours of the morning, she said, "I think you might enjoy being part of a little group that's been meeting in each other's apartments in New York City. When we get back there, we're, we're going to have a meeting. Why don't you come?" And I came, and that was it. I mean, I went from being a non-feminist or know-nothing to being a baby feminist to being a totally passionate and committed feminist. And feminism kind of replaced, it became my religion, I would say. I had walked away from Judaism because when my mother died, I wasn't allowed to count in the what's called the minion. It's the quorum that's needed for public prayer. And only men could count. So they needed 10 men and I wasn't a man, even though I was my mother's daughter even though I was very educated Jewishly by that time. Been a bat mitzvah, one of the first in conservative Judaism to have a bat mitzvah, which is the you know, female equivalent of a bar mitzvah, a coming-of-age ceremony. And even though I had all that background, I didn't count until I just rebelled and I counted myself out of my people, out of my faith. And feminism replaced it. As they say, the rest was history, at least for me. During, I guess, that period when you were working so closely with the feminist movement and Miss Magazine, was there any pushback, I guess, either within the movement or outside about the fact that you were also a mother and a wife? Yeah, no, no. That that was another one of the misbegotten stereotypes of a feminist is that they hate hate wives and mothers. Mm -hmm. It's absurd. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of 
feminists all over this country, and they weren't all single. They weren't all single. They weren't all, all lesbians. They weren't all anything. They were all kinds of women, and including women with families and living women living in traditional families. I lived in a non-traditional way in a traditional family. So that's the goal, I think, of what motivated a lot of women, wives, and mothers to be feminists. They didn't want to walk out on their marriages. They wanted to live them differently. That's all. They didn't want to have their husbands come home, put up their feet, you know, have a beer, and the woman does the dinner and does the wash and does the children's bath times and story times. And, and you know, the dad comes in on weekends to toss a ball around. That's not what they wanted. But they didn't want to leave their marriages. They wanted to revolutionize their marriages. So I didn't ever get pushed back. I was in a consciousness raising group for four years. Mine met every Tuesday night for four years, except in the summertime when people sort of went all over the place. I was the only person in a family situation. I mean, there were other married women in the group, but they didn't have young children. So I had a husband and young children and a job and work. And they, the other people in the group would be so interested in my life. It was part of the learning experience was for people who, because there were a lot of, we were young then, so there were young women who who weren't even in, interested in, in getting married, although eventually did, you know, straight women, uh, who really were interested in what my husband Bert and I were evolving, because our, our marriage evolved over time thanks to feminism in a way that worked for both of us. We started out in completely traditional roles, because, you know, everybody else did too. We didn't know any different, and our roles evolved to suit us. There's no one way that they evolved to suit us without regard for sex roles, obligatory sex roles. It became just flexible when it was, it might be different for us than it would be for the feminist next door who's in the same situation with three children. So my colleagues, my sisters in our consciousness raising group were always, you know, oh, how do you do that? How do you get that? How do you feel that? And what does he say when, you know? And how did you get him to? And I know those kinds of conversations had never been had before because women used to be always trying to outperform each other as the perfect wife, the perfect mother of the the 60s, 50s and 60s. -hmm. And then once feminism kind of reared its head, there were bifurcations. There were strict dichotomies between supposedly you know, traditional women and rabble-rousers. Well, there was an awful lot in between. Hundreds and hundreds of consciousness-raising groups popped up everywhere, not just on campuses, not just in big cities, everywhere. And women just told the truth to each other in in those places and looked forward to those meetings as an outlet and as a place to strategize and as a place to ventilate. Talking about your sort of shifting gender roles and your marriage and everything, how did you manage to balance it all, like work, writing, your various groups, and having a family? Well, you first have to make clear, I have to make clear that my husband was the person making the money because a writer doesn't make money. So I used to say it's like I have a foundation grant. It's called BERT. That allows me to do my writing. Otherwise, if Mm -hmm. I were a single mother, forget it. 
I wouldn't have had any time to do anything else except hold down a job and be there for my children. When there's two people in, in a household, that gets all split up all different ways. My husband isn't the most handy person, so it wasn't like he did all the things involving tools. I'm, I think I'm a little handier than he is. Both of us are probably pretty pit- pitiful in, in fixing things. But we split things like that, you know? If, if something broke, whoever thought they might be able to fix it, fix it, fixed it. I remember that I kind of became the person who was in charge of electricity because I learned how to wire a lamp. <laughs> but uh, And my husband was in charge of fixing the toilets if they went bad. That's just, we just discovered along the way that we were better suited, each of us, to those. I cook. He does not cook very well. He makes a million different forms of eggs very nicely. He can do it. Eggs, omelets, you know, sunny side up, all that kind of thing. But I'm a real cook, so I cook, I leave the mess, he cleans it up. That was an easy one for us. I usually organize the kids' um, outside activities, and he took them there. He checked some of their homework because he was better at those courses, and I checked others of their homework because I was better at them. It, it, it began to be very obvious where our strengths were rather than where our sex roles belonged. We followed our strengths. That seems the smartest way to go about it. And the nice thing about Bert is he never mistook his masculinity for power. So if I was the one who decided something in the household, it wasn't suddenly like I was emasculating him. It didn't have anything. It never never challenged his sense of who he was as a man, as a person. For me to have certain, let's say, uh, control over certain aspects of our lives. I mean, he's so beyond that trivial kind of assessment of what a man is. In in terms of like your your books, you've written about, you know, raising children and working as a woman and family and friendship. How did you choose the subjects you wrote on and how did you approach the research? The the subjects chose me in, in every case. In every case, including Shonda, I mean, being this old, I've said everything I have to say. All I have to do is look back now and try to make sense of my life. Mm-hmm. So I didn't say I'm going to write about shame and secrecy. I didn't realize that that's what it was going to be about. I just was trying to make, I'm saying to myself, when I started this book, I was 78. I'm saying in two years, I'm going to be 80. I had better really see what makes sense here. What What's my life added up to? What is What does it mean? How How did I get to be who I am? How did I get to behave the way I do, value what I do, all of that? That shows me that subject matter. Same thing when I was raising the children and going through my sort of feminist conversion, I realized that I was thinking in terms of adult women. But if we don't change the way we raise children, we're just going to have to do it all over again with each crop of adult women. We're going to have to help them figure out how to undo what they've learned, which is so meaning and debilitating and untruthful to themselves. So we have to start young. And that's what got me so interested in non-sexist child rearing. And we had to just, we, for, for those of us who had to repair, we had no choice. We had to repair what had been done by the inculcation of the, of the very narrow feminist, feminine ideals. But for the baby who's just come out into the world, 
don't put a pink hat on her in her little crib in the nursery, hospital nursery. People were always asking, what did you have? They don't mean, did you have a healthy child? Did you have an active child? Did you have a, a child who's a, a big bone kid who's going to be, you can see is going to be formidable? <laughs> or did you have a, a, a little tiny child who's going to need a, a little extra added help getting strong? What? There's so much to say about what, what did you have, but all people mean is a girl or a boy. Because if they don't know what you had, they don't know how to treat it. And once they know that you had a girl, they're going to treat it differently, treat her differently than if you had said you had a boy. And it, it takes, starts to play out in, you know, what's hanging over the crib in terms of the little objects in the mobile that's, you know, teetering over the crib for the child's visual exposure to, you know, visual stimuli. I, I mean, it's in every little tiny thing. It's in, you know, the pink cover and the blue cover, and it's in the, the stuffed animals. What are they like? You know, one is a real sheep and one is a great big, you know, humongous panda. Why? Why didn't she get, you give a little girl the humongous panda? Why is a little sheep in her, in her crib? And then asking, you know, meeting a little girl and saying, oh, what a pretty dress. Meeting a little boy and saying, well, you, you look like quite a buster. You know, these completely different linguistic approaches and toy choices and room decor, book choices, all of that begins to map the child's life before the child has any chance to express an interest in, in any particular thing. And that's why I spent eight years researching child development, researching sexual socialization, Freudian psychology. I, I mean, I couldn't stop. I absolutely Marinated, marinated myself in all of that literature so that I could debunk it, so I could have the data. And Growing Up Free, the only regret I have about Growing Up Free is that my publisher talked me into the subtitle, which is Raising Your Child in the 80s, which means who's going to read it in, 19, in 2023? Nobody, but what's in there is, is still topical. The only change is the, the, the toys are different and the TV shows are different, and there's cable. But the concepts are precisely what we have to still be engaging with when we're raising children so they won't be trapped and limited by sex worlds, which still exist, sadly. The only thing that's really, really outdated is my chapters on homosexuality, because who could have ever dreamed up homosexual marriage? Not I. You know, same-sex mm-hmm. marriage would have been unthinkable when I was writing this in the 70s. Because I started this book pretty much when I was part of the founding of Ms. The very mm-hmm. first issue contains my article, Down with Sexist Upbringing. Because when I had these epiphanies around feminism and then realized that I was treating my children the, the same old-fashioned way anyone did, I, I, I realized that had to be changed from the, from the ground up. And then I spent those next eight years writing that book while I was at Ms. And then I wrote uh, different books, but... I I guess I managed it because I had this kind of really partner husband and because we could afford help and because I only worked outside the home three days a week. Once my children were born, I I never went back to a five day a week outside the home because I, I really felt I needed two of my days for writing and, you know, four of my days for my family. And three would be long to either Bernie Geist or Miss. That was the way I looked at it. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the sort of ideal schedule if you're lucky, you know, if you have the 
privilege to set it up that way. Think about what big if that is Mm -hmm. for millions and millions of women. I mean, who who can't afford childcare? Because I I couldn't have gone out those three days if I didn't have a childcare person that I could depend on. My husband and I both left for work three days a week. Or he he worked every day, but I mean, the three days I wasn't there. Somebody arrived, took over, and we didn't have to worry. Women who have to worry, men who have to worry, parents who have to worry, can't do their best work, can't manage it. That's the disgrace of, of American life, is we revere children, we glorify the family, we have Mother's Day, we have Father's Day, but we don't really know how to take care of children and what they need and mm-hmm. how to support families. At what point did Judaism become a larger part of your life? Well, when I left sort of the organized Jewish world in 1955, when my mother died and I wasn't permitted to count in the minion at her mm-hmm. memorial service, uh, then the following 15 years, I never belonged to a synagogue again for 15 years. I I never went to Sabbath services at a synagogue. I practiced what I call home-based Judaism, which was more or less my mother's Judaism, the Judaism of a Sabbath table, of a, a Seder on Passover, of a Hanukkah celebration, lighting of candles, blessings over the wine and the challah, the bread, the, bre- the braided bread that we use on to mark the Sabbath, the expression of gratitude that those blessings contain and were important to me. And I went to synagogue only the high holy day, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's our Jewish New Year. And I did that because Judaism requires that when we confess our sins, we do it in community. We speak our sins as our sins. We don't say my because we take responsibility for each other. And so we're obligated to be in community for those most sacrosanct prayers, days of prayer. And I I did observe that. I found myself a synagogue. Synagogues in New York, all over New York, have overflow services. Like they'll be in a basement recreation room or they'll be in a side chapel. And you pay a small fee and you go to that service. Or if you can't afford it, you go anyway. You uh, experience the High Holy Days in community. And then that was it for me for 15 years. I did not send my children to Hebrew school or have them bar or bat for that because I did not want them to have to be schooled in this patriarchal faith. But once it started to, once Judaism started to be transformed by Jew- Jewish feminism, I found my way back. And I have belonged to a wonderful synagogue in New York, and I'm very involved in several Jewish feminist organizations. And the home-based Judaism that we still practice, but now I filled in the gaps with the same kind of activities that I was raised with as a child, except they're totally transformed. They're egalitarian. The God language is not all he, he, king, you know, prince, ruler. It's not all um, couched in patriarchal images or language. So it's, it feels entirely differently. With Shonda, your latest book, had you started working on a book about your family before you found the, the bag of letters and everything? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I was writing this memoir to, to, to look back and, and sort of evaluate my decisions and decode my passions and try to figure out what 
what patterns I had and why and where they originated, all that. And then I found the letters and then I saw how many secrets I had not known about. I'd known about plenty of, but so many key secrets revealed themselves through the letters, the documents, finding divorce papers and citizenship papers and all kinds of scribbles that illuminated dark corners I had never known existed or I had given up on ever knowing anything about. And that allowed order to be built out of the chaos of trying to look at your whole life and figure out what its real meaning is. Suddenly there was this theme of shame and secrecy and how much of my family was in its grip and how I had imbibed it and how I had transformed it positively or caved to it negatively. And that all was just luckily because I found that trapped in bed because of my granddaughter. So it was like full circle. It was like, and the child shall lead you. <laughs> you know that line? Mm-hmm. I think it's from Psalms or something or Proverbs. And the child shall lead you. And Molly led me unknowingly to this treasure chest that illuminated everything for me. I mean, maybe there's more. Maybe there are still undiscovered things, but I don't think anybody's going to find them if they weren't in that bag. It seems like that bag just held so much. Yes, indeed. Well, I can tell you that everything that was in that bag is now neatly rearranged in folders. Mm Mm-hmm. And the photographs have been put in in order so that for my own family, everything, their history is much more accessible now. They don't have to spend two solid weeks reading hundreds of letters. Was it difficult writing this book? Was it harder than writing your other ones? Certain chapters, the ones where my own children are involved and I can't change what I regret, those those were the hardest. Much harder than reconstructing my other family members' secrets or even admitting my own illness secret that I kept for a long time, again, for a Jewish reason, you know? Mm-hmm. So afraid that I was going to be losing my mind. But writing about my, I won't say errors, because I, I didn't make mistakes that I could have foreseen were mistakes, but understanding that I had missed certain signals from my children. That's painful because I can't fix it. You know, mm-hmm. that's gone. And that, that pain was in the regret, not in the reliving, but just in the in the regret that it was unfixable. These things are unfixable. I mean, they have forgiven me and us in the case of my son where we, quote, let him go to culinary school. And I mean, we have lived to regret that. But we didn't know. We were trying to be good parents the way that good parents were defined in the 1980s, that you honored your child's individuality. But we should have, could have, I wish did, realize that as the adults in the room, an 18-year-old does not understand why you really need a four-year college education to keep your options open. We just should have overruled him. But whenever I talk about that, you know, I give talks all over the place about my book and people often say, volunteer, who've read the book say, you're too hard on yourself. And you don't realize how much your your son would have resented you if you had denied him his fervent wish to go to the Culinary Institute of America. That was his dream. It's like if you would deny someone who got into the School of American Ballet and didn't let her dance, you know. And I so I looked at that a, a different way. That helped, <laughs> you know. Even though he his options are so 
constrained as a result of us letting him go to culinary school. I don't know what it would have done to his spirit as a human being if his parents had barred the door to something he wanted that much. And that that was a very healthy perspective for somebody to give me. That took a little of the heat off, you know. And I talked to my son about it. He agreed. He said, yeah, I think I would have really been furious with you. I don't know. I, w- I would have forgiven you probably, but I would have been really furious if you had stopped me. So I forgive myself that. But in terms of the uh, the business about my daughter's very strongly feeling, quote, there were times when I wanted more of you, that's a sentence that cuts me to the quick, and I can't fix that one. So, Laura, I'm going to say goodbye and touch by your doing so much research on me. That's flattering and, and endearing, and thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. It's been really wonderful. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Letty Cotton Pogreven. On the website, I've put together a slideshow of images of Letty's life and a short bio, along with a bunch of video clips of interviews from over the decades. I've recorded a ton of really great interviews coming up very soon. Everyone from authors, actors, iconic artists, illustrators, fashion designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com.